0: Sometimes the plan works out exactly like you wanted. Stetson Kennedy grew up in the South, always hated the Klan, back at a time when the Ku Klux Klan was still feared. And after the end of World War II, he decided to do something about it. And so his great idea was to go
1: undercover in the Ku Klux Klan. And so he moved to Atlanta, which was the headquarters
0: of the Klan. This is Stephen Dubner, co-author of a new book that, among other things, tells the story of Stetson Kennedy. Kennedy made up a fake name, started hanging around in bars filled with guys who had, Kennedy wrote, the frustrated, cruel look of the Klan to them. He played a lot of pool, drank a lot of beers, until finally, one afternoon, he heard what he was waiting for from a guy he calls Slim, a cab driver.
1: And Slim uh, quickly revealed himself as a bigot, saying, you know, what this country needs is a good kluxen. You got too many of these Catholics and Jews and et cetera, et cetera. And Stetson Kennedy said something to the effect of, yeah, but, you know, uh," he said, my uncle, Brady, he used to be a Klansman, which was true. But uh, I hear the Klan is long gone, aren't they? And then this guy Slim whips out his Klan recruitment card um, and starts to kind of put the hard sell on Stetson Kennedy.
0: Stetson actually plays hard to get for a little while, and then he joins up, gets a robe and a hood, starts going to weekly meetings learns the secret passwords and the secret names that the clan has for things, which turn out to follow an amazingly simple pattern. They would just add the letters K L to
1: the front of a lot of things. So like the the clan's meeting place was called a clavern, like a cavern but a clavern. And, a, and two clansmen would hold a conversation, And then the officers were known as like the claliph and the clocard and the clud and the cligrap and the claby and the clad and the clorogo and the clexter and all these ridiculous things.
0: Did they have a clan
1: shake? They, they had a clan handshake, which um, you would grip left hands in this kind of like limp-wristed way and kind of wiggle like a fish a few times. And that was the clan handshake. The other thing about the clan that Stetson and Kennedy found out was that they were a pretty smooth money-making operation. And so there were all kinds of dues, and you had to buy your robe from a certain place, and robes were very expensive, and you could only have your robe cleaned in a certain place because they didn't want everybody to find out about it. So it was this big racket. There were all kinds of rackets.
0: I never thought to think that, actually, you had to buy your robe from them. I, I just somehow thought that they all made their own robes. Not
1: only did you have to buy your robe, but they charged, like, 15 bucks for a robe, which at the time was a lot of money, and they really were just
0: sheets with hoods. The Kennedy tried to use the information that he was discovering inside the Klan against the Klan. When his chapter was hired by local businesses to break up a union meeting or threaten organizers, he'd warn the union guys in advance. He passed along other information to an assistant attorney general in Georgia. He wrote editorials. He made speeches. At one point, he actually wanted to start a competing group that he also wanted to call the Ku Klux Klan, which, in theory, would have let him get injunctions against any real Klan group on the grounds that they were violating the laws and charter of his Ku Klux Klan. He was having some successes, but it was kind of slow going. And then he harnessed the most powerful force known to man. I'm talking, of course, about radio. And that's when he came up with this
1: unbelievable idea. He he was one day walking down the street and he saw some kids playing this game of like cops and robbers, essentially, and they were exchanging secret passwords. And it reminded him of the Klan because the Klan meetings that he went to, they would change the password every day. They had the secret handshake. It was all this, like, childlike stuff. And, you know, this was right as World War II was over. And one of the biggest, um, you know, figures in all the media and in all the public imagination at that point was Superman in the comic books. But also the Superman radio show was hugely, hugely, hugely popular. It was on every night. And he thought, huh, I wonder if I could somehow get the Superman radio show to do a show about the Ku Klux Klan using this real information about the Ku Klux Klan that I have. And like it could be like Superman takes on the Ku Klux Klan. Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs)
2: When Jimmy Olsen, as manager of the Unity House baseball team, selected a Chinese boy named Tommy Lee for his number one pitcher, he incurred the wrath of a band of intolerant bigots calling themselves the Clan of the Fiery Cross.
1: So Stetson manager, Kennedy started feeding them information, Riggs, and Brian's they would end up doing four weeks' worth of Cassis daily, Cassis nightly TV radio shows.
2: In a glade, casting weird shadows over the nearby hills and lighting the sky above burns a huge wooden cross. Before it kneel, half a hundred men clothed in long robes.
0: In this scene, a white school kid is brought to a Klan rally by his uncle.
2: Gosh, who are all these guys, Uncle Matt? And why are you wearing the sheets and hoods? We're the clan of the Fiery Cross, Chuck. We're a great secret society pledged to purify America. America for 100% Americans only. One race, one religion, one color. I don't get it. America's got all kinds of religions and colors. Mm, when we get through, there'll only be one. Only one? But the Constitution says all Americans have the same rights and privileges. Constitution. <laughs> we'll change that.
0: I'll be quiet. And Kennedy wrote about it? this uh, in his own in his own writing, correct?
1: Yeah, at the first Klan meeting he went to after the show hit the air, the Grand Dragon, who was the leader the local group he's trying to run the meeting and then one just regular rank and file clansman um gets up and starts shouting he said i came home from work the other night and my kid and all these other kids they had their these towels tied around their necks like capes and some of them had pillowcases over their heads and the ones with the capes were chasing the ones with pillowcases and when i asked them what they were doing they said they were playing this new game of cops and robbers called superman against the clan i never felt so ridiculous in all my life Suppose my own kid finds my clan robe someday.
0: Ted Kennedy was also feeding his information to big-time journalists and radio commentators like Walter Winchell and Drew Pearson, who would quote things that happened at that week's Klan meetings. And I don't want to exaggerate the effect of all this. From a Klan perspective, it wasn't, you know, cataclysmic, but it was pretty upsetting. They didn't like being made fun of. The climax of the four weeks of Superman broadcast comes in this um, scene that is pure poetic license on the part of the Superman writers. Basically, the racist uncle in the story evades capture by Superman and seeks refuge with the imperial head of the clan, who in this radio world, Ku Klux Klan, sees the clan only as a money-making scheme, nothing more, just a way to get suckers to pay dues and buy robes.
2: Come now, Riggs. Is it possible that you really believe all that stuff about getting rid of the foreigners? That one race, one religion, one color hokum? Hokum? Why, it's the absolute truth. We've got to save America from foreign elements. Well, I'll be... I thought you had brains, Riggs. But you've become drunk on the slop we put up for the suckers. Suckers? Who are you calling? Our members, Riggs. The poor fish who want to hate and blame somebody else for their failures in life. The saps who believe drivel such as a man is a dangerous enemy because he goes to a different church. The little nobodies who want to believe some of the race is inferior so they can feel superior. The jerks who go for that 100% American rot. Rot? You mean you don't believe? Of course not. You must know there is no such thing as what we call a 100% American. Everyone here except the Indians is descended from foreigners. Boy, bless you, Wilson. You talk like a dirty foreigner yourself. I'm running a business, Riggs, and so are you. We deal in one of the oldest and most profitable commodities on earth. Hate. <laughs>
0: that's how you do it right there you get to know your enemy and then you put it on the radio as fortunately as you can we have three stories today on our radio show that do just that with uh, one big difference from stessa kennedy's story in none of our other stories today do things work out so victoriously in fact in the other three stories in today's show when people get to know their enemies it just makes things way more complicated and more confusing From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today's show, Know Your Enemy. Act one, the minister meets the martyr. We have the remarkable true story of a suicide bomber and her conversation with the head of the defense forces from the other side. Act two, I Am Curious Jello, in which two former adversaries, punk star Jello Biafra and the government prosecutor who went after him, Sit down after two decades to talk. Act three, 8% of nothing. How can we do an hour on knowing your enemy without at least one story about knowing the enemy, who is your spouse? Sometimes, anyway. Stay with us. Act one, the minister meets the martyr. I first heard about this um, first story a few years ago, and I was kind of stunned that it had happened at all. It's the kind of thing that you see in movies, but it's really hard to believe that it could happen in real life. Basically, the story is this. There's a country at war, and the head of its defense establishment decides that he wants to meet with foot soldiers from the other side, the people at the very bottom of the military, to understand better what's motivating them. Even more incredible than the fact that these meetings happened is the fact that a reporter is there to record exactly what they say to each other at one of these meetings. This happened back in 2002. Israel's defense minister... Their Donald Brumsfeld decided that he wanted to meet face-to-face with suicide bombers who, for one reason or another, had failed to carry out their plans. Israel's intelligence agency, the Shin Bet, arranged for a meeting with two Palestinians who'd set out to blow themselves up but didn't. The first at this meeting was a teenager named Rasan Stiti, who didn't seem remorseful and who told the minister that he'd wanted to die a martyr's death to help his people to get rewards in paradise. With the second bomber, it was much more complicated. What uh, you're going to hear now is an excerpt from Verod levi Barcelai's story in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz from June 21, 2002, just a week after the meeting. Remember, she's writing for an Israeli audience about all this. The article was read for us by Enid Graham.
3: The meeting took place last week on Sunday at 2 p.m. in the detention room in the Russian compound in Jerusalem. Defense Minister Ben Eliezer was accompanied by his military secretary, Brigadier General Mike Herzog. He came straight from a cabinet meeting, dressed in a dark suit, light shirt, and tie. The two men entered the room where the Shinbet personnel were waiting. The little room was too narrow to comfortably accommodate all those present. They met Rasan Stiti, and then Aaron Ahmed was brought in. She was very different from Stiti. He sat slouched in his seat and averted his gaze for most of the session, not daring to look Ben Eliezer in the eye. Ahmed, in contrast, sat upright and looked straight ahead. Stiti was stiff. She was very expressive. He spoke only Arabic. She sometimes switched to fluent English and occasionally used a few words of Hebrew. He spoke in a cold, monotonous tone, as if he were reciting slogans. Ahmed, on the other hand, seemed much more sincere, and they tended to believe her. Ahmed impressed them as a young woman with a charismatic personality. Before she arrived here, Arun Ahmed was studying communications and computer programming at Bethlehem University. She's 20, born in Beit Sahor outside of Bethlehem. Her father died when she was still a baby. For reasons that are not totally clear, her mother abandoned her and moved to Amman, Jordan, where she still is. Arin's aunts and uncles raised her and sought her education. On March 8 of this year, she experienced another loss— Tanzim militant Jad Salem, her boyfriend of a year and a half, was killed. According to the Palestinians, he was killed by Israeli defense force's gunfire. Israeli intelligence says, quote, he was apparently killed while attempting to prepare a car bomb. Aran decided to avenge the death of her beloved by carrying out a suicide bombing. She conveyed a message to this effect to a senior Tanzim militant. On May twenty second, Tanzim activists Ali Yusuf Mhrabi and Mahmoud Salem picked her up and took her to prepare for a suicide bombing in Rishon Lesion. They introduced her to a sixteen year old boy, Isa Badr from Beit Jala. They were supposed to carry out the attack together. Mahmoud Salem instructed Badr to blow himself up amid the backgammon tables on the open plaza. Aaron was supposed to wait on the other side of the street for the people who weren't killed or injured in the first explosion to run in a panic towards where she was standing. The expectation was that she would soon be surrounded by a large crowd. Then she was to choose the right moment and blow herself up. The explosives were packed into black knapsacks. Aaron said that she had already written a farewell letter to her family. She purified herself and prayed. The men explained to her that she had to pass for a young Israeli woman, so she was asked to wear Western-style dress, tight pants, and a midriff top. She did as she was told. Then they met with Ibrahim Sarane, Mahmoud's cousin, who explained how to get to the site chosen for the attack and described the place for them in great detail. Serenay transported them nearby. When they arrived, Serenay gave Aaron and Isa precise instructions via cell phone, where exactly to stand so as to have the most lethal effect. They got out of the car with their knapsacks and headed for opposite sides of the street as instructed. Aaron stood in her position for about ten minutes. Then she suddenly left the spot, returned to the park car, and told Serenay that she had changed her mind and didn't want to go through with the bombing. The Tanzim men were enraged that she had backed out. They reminded her of the lofty status she would achieve and the great honor awaiting her in paradise. Aaron watched as the teenager ran and blew himself up right before her eyes. She again told her handlers that she wouldn't go through with it, and they brought her back to Bethlehem. Aaron Ahmed is not handcuffed when she is led in to meet the defense minister. She sits at the table, dressed in long pants and a gray sweater, a tall, full-figured young woman with long black hair and dark eyes. Ben Eliezer. Explain to me why you wanted to commit a suicide bombing in Israel. Was it for religious reasons? Ahmed. No, it was something personal. I was in distress. I was depressed. Ben Eliezer. Why did you want to commit suicide? Ahmed. You killed my friend. Ben Eliezer, was he a close friend of yours? Ahmed, yes, we were friends for a year and a half. Ben Eliezer, did you live together? Ahmed, no, of course not. There's no such thing in our society, but we were friends, and he was killed. Ben Eliezer, so what did you want to happen? Did you want to kill innocent Jews in order to avenge his death? Ahmed. I don't know what I wanted. I was very hurt and angry. I have friends from the university who are active in the Tanzim. We get together a lot and go out together. We were sitting together one evening, and they were talking about how they wanted to organize a reprisal action against all the military actions and everything that Israel had done to them in the last months. I sat and listened. I thought about Jod, and all of a sudden I said to them, you know what? I'm going to do a suicide bombing. That was it. A moment earlier, I hadn't thought of anything like that. This was on a Friday. Afterward, I went home. I spoke with someone in the Tanzim and told them that I wanted to do it. Ben Eliezer. And what happened then? Ahmed. I thought they would take me to start preparing for it, that they would train me and teach me about weapons, something like that. I was sure it was a process that took several months. And then suddenly, four days later, some Tanzim militants came and told me, we've chosen you. Congratulations, you're going to do a suicide bombing. And then some more senior people came. I was in shock. I never imagined it could happen so fast. But they didn't let me think about it too much. They told me, you'll gain a very special status among the women suicide bombers. You'll be a real heroine. It's for Jod's memory. You'll be reunited with him in heaven. You'll be with him in paradise. I did whatever they told me. They explained everything to Issa and me. This all happened very fast. And then we set out. Ben Eliezer, did your family know? Ahmed, no, I left on the day I wrote my farewell letter. Ben Eliezer. And you didn't feel bad about what it would do to them? Ahmed. I was only thinking about my boyfriend. Ben Eliezer. And what happened then? Why did you change your mind? Ahmed. I got out of the car. The place wasn't exactly like I'd seen on the map. I saw a lot of people, mothers with children, teenage boys and girls... I remembered an Israeli girl my age whom I used to be in touch with. I suddenly understood what I was about to do, and I said to myself, "'How can I do such a thing?' "'I changed my mind.' Isa also had second thoughts, but they managed to convince him to go ahead. I saw him go and blow himself up. I decided that I wasn't going to do it. They were very angry at me. They yelled at me the whole way back— And they also tried to send me to carry out another attack in Jerusalem, but I'd already changed my mind and given up the whole idea. I stayed at home until your forces came and arrested me. Ben Eliezer, and now what? Ahmed, and now I'm here. It was a mistake. It's wrong to kill people and children doing something like that is forbidden. There's no way I would do it. And the fact is, I didn't do it. Ben Eliezer. If you're released, what will you do? Ahmed. I'd leave this place immediately. I'd go live in Jordan with my mother. I would draw a line across the past and never come back here. Yes, I faltered, but it was a momentary stumble. That's not me. I was swept up into this thing, but I came to my senses. In Jordan, with my mother and sisters, I would continue studying. I'd get a degree at the university. I'd never go near anything like this again. At this point, Ben Eliezer says goodbye and signals that the conversation is ended. Ahmed bursts out crying. Please, Mr. Minister, wait a minute. There's something else I want to tell you. Ben Eliezer turns around to listen. Ahmed... I'm finished with this. I swear it. Please let me out of here. I want to ask you to transfer me to my family in Jordan. He listens, but doesn't say anything. She sighs. What will become of me? I have no future. I don't want my whole life to be ruined because of this. I didn't do anything. Don't forget that. I didn't do it. I changed my mind. Please let me out. To each his fate, Ben Eliezer said, and then he left the room. Last Thursday afternoon, in his office at the defense ministry, Ben Eliezer said that from now on he intends to keep interviewing other potential suicide bombers, because they're the main problem that the defense establishment has to contend with. This is an efficient, quick, cheap, and highly lethal kind of weapon that is very hard to overcome— the defense minister said. That's why I want to meet them face to face. There are professionals in the Shin Bet whose job it is to do this. Why was it important for you to meet them yourself? If I'm fighting against something, I need to get to know it personally. I know tanks and airplanes and artillery, but I don't know the person who turns himself into a bomb. Do you think you'll learn something that you didn't know before? First of all, I wanted to have the contact, to look them in the eye, to see if they look me in the eye, to see how I would feel, to try to understand directly what causes a young man or woman in their teens to throw everything away, to go out and murder innocent people, to commit suicide. I had to sit down across from this thing. And what did you learn? I felt different things in the meeting with him and the meeting with her, and I learned different things from both cases— The young man said he wouldn't do it again, but I didn't believe him. He recited the brainwashing they did to him, nothing more. It sounded more like someone with a weak character whom the surrounding system had homed in on, caught, and trained for the assignment. He seemed like a spineless young man, nothing special. How did the meeting with her go? It wasn't easy. She showed emotion. She spoke. She was quiet. She smiled. She cried. She's an intelligent young woman and took part in a flowing conversation. How did you feel when you were sitting there facing her? To be honest, I felt sorry for her. I admit it, I thought she was pitiable. I found it hard to fathom how a girl like her, an educated young woman with her whole future ahead of her, could have ended up in such a situation, ready to commit such an inhuman act. On the other hand, the fact that she did not go through with it and the way she expressed remorse touched me. I admit that I felt compassion for her. What do you think ought to be done with her? I don't know, and I'm not the one who has to decide. I tend to believe that if she's released, she will get as far away from here as possible and try to start a new life. Isn't there something unseemly about a defense minister choosing to sit down with someone who almost killed innocent civilians and giving her a platform and then even feeling such empathy towards her listen well this meeting was held in the context of no thine enemy none of the rest interests me to me this is an important meeting that is supplying valuable information she was just a hairbreadth away from blowing herself up and killing innocent israeli civilians true and you don't have to remind me of that i haven't forgotten that for a moment But then she tells you her life story and smiles and cries, and you remember that this is a 20-year-old girl, and you also feel sorry for her. My gut feeling was that she was telling the truth. She almost did a monstrous thing, but in the end, she didn't. Of course, I haven't changed my opinion about the severity of the phenomenon or the severity of the fact that she was a willing participant in it until the very last moment, and she also didn't prevent the terror attack but she did manage to move me. What new and relevant information did this meeting provide? There's an entire system that operates to produce human bombs. Here you can see how this machine works. As soon as she said she wanted to commit suicide, the whole thing took on a tremendous momentum and went totally out of her control. Here you have a girl who suddenly blurted something out. I'm almost certain that she herself didn't really mean it. But as soon as the words were said, they pounced on her. They came at her from every direction. And how does all this insight and analysis help us? The terror attacks are continuing all the time. 86% of terror attacks are foiled and prevented. Understanding the enemy is always helpful, knowing the -the behind-the-scenes mechanisms. We're interested in the moment that comes before. I have a lot of information on the table. My objective is to prevent suicide bombings. That's what Operation Defensive Shield was for. That's what all the other operations are for. But unfortunately, while the Israeli defense forces are carrying out these necessary actions, the operations themselves become a hothouse that produces more and more new suicide bombers. The military actions kindle the frustration, hatred, and despair, and are the incubator for the terror to come. The religious and political environment immediately exploits this effect and dispatches the new suicide bombers, and the pattern is repeated. You are the defense minister of the state of Israel, and you're basically saying that we're trapped in an endless vicious circle, that there's no solution, that we have no horizon to look toward, and no hope that this terrible situation will end. It is a terribly vicious and evil circle, but I do see hope. With Yasser Arafat, it won't happen. It will happen with someone else. As soon as the Palestinians have a new dream of a truly better life, of a normal life, the whole bit about the virgins in paradise and all the other nonsense they've sold them will lose its magic. I believe that then young people like Arun Ahmed and even Rasan Stiti will say no to anyone who tries to convince them to choose death over life.
0: Actressenid Graham, reading a story from the Israeli newspaper Haaretz from June 2002. If you like this kind of coverage of the East conflict, Haaretz's English-language website is haaretzdaily.com. In all, about a dozen suicide bombers met with the defense minister, according to the ministry. Coming up, Jell-O and a Marshmallow sit down together and talk. It's going to make a lot more sense in about five minutes, okay? from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week, of course, on our program, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Know Your Enemy, stories of people getting to know the people that they are fighting and how complicated that can be. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, another act in which two adversaries have a rare face-to-face meeting. Act 2, I Am Curious Jello. This is the story of a guy who gets to understand his enemy, but way too late to do him any good at all. It starts in 1986, when Michael Garino is the latest hire at something called the Special Operations Division of the L.A. District Attorney's Office. It's a prestigious job, a chance to try high-profile cases about a fairly juicy subject, obscenity. Garino is just 38, young compared to the rest of his colleagues, and he's about to file charges that are going to make headlines around the world. David Siegel tells what happened. There's an old joke that sums up this whole story in a punchline. Be warned, it's
4: a little off-color. It's about a guy complaining in a bar about how he's remembered. I served in the House of Representatives for ten years, he says. But does anyone call me Mr. Congressman? No, sir. I ran a corner store for a decade, but does anyone call me Mr. Grocer? No, they don't. I owned a farm for a long, long time and harvested wheat and raised cattle. Does anyone call me Mr. Farmer? Nope. You s*** one sheep. Thank you. Enjoy your salads. I'll be here a week. Okay, it's a little crude, but it gets us to this question you probably never thought you'd hear. How do you un a sheep? What do you do if you remembered for one of the worst moments in your life, for years, even if that person is no longer really you? Michael Garina has confronted this very matter, minus the sheep, of course, for a while. We start at the height of the Reagan era culture wars. Tipper Gore is pushing warning labels on albums by bands like Judas Priest and Twisted Sister. The punk rock band called Dead Kennedys has released an album called Frankenchrist, and and included in every copy is a poster by a Swiss artist named H.R. Giger. You know Giger's work, even if you don't recognize his name, because he designed the look of the great sci-fi monster movie Alien, which earned him an Academy Award. But the Giger poster in this album would never earn a PG rating. I'd love to describe it but current broadcasting standards make that risky. The title of the painting says everything you need to know. Penis Landscape. Let's just move on. Garino gets a copy of Penis Landscape, and he thinks he's the grounds for an obscenity charge.
5: I remember looking at the piece of art and and thinking just on the basis of the insert that we had a great case. It seemed to me that that is the kind of material that most adults wouldn't want to see distributed to kids. Dead Kennedys, for those who don't know,
4: were a big deal in the world of punk rock, one of the most popular American acts the genre ever produced. The band's music ran, for the most part, at the speed of a blender on puree, and the lyrics, written by singer and songwriter Jella Biafra, were strongly anti-government, to the point of paranoia. They had a song called Government Flu about an imagined attempt by the U.S. to poison its own citizens. Another tune called California Oberalis compared former Governor Jerry Brown to Hitler.
0: California, Oberalis, yeah, California
4: Garino ordered up an investigation and soon after nine cops were busting into the apartment of Jella Biafra. This was the sort of case that could make a young prosecutor's name and Garino made the most of it. During the year and a half it took to get this matter into court, he was quoted in places like the New York Times, and he was soon famous enough to be denounced by Frank Zappa. He wanted to set a precedent, and he was on a winning streak, 30 victories in a row, which made him a little cocky. He never bothered to research the dead Kennedys, and when a colleague suggested he might want to listen to the Christ album, he ignored her. He believed in what he was doing, The law seemed utterly clear to him, and he was in love with the righteousness of his cause. At one point, he actually compared Jello Biafra to a serial murderer named Richard Ramirez, who's convicted of killing 13 people. But as soon as the trial began, Garino realized that he would have to fight for the moral high ground. He was up against Phil Schneerson, a very expensive and widely admired defense lawyer, who decided to take Jello's case for free. Schneerson had a mastery of the arguments and a sense of humor.
5: Even when Phil was interviewing prospective jurors, it seemed to Garino he was charming the room. He seemed to be having a whole lot of fun with the trial, way more fun than I was having with it. And um, he seemed to feel like he was on the right side. And um, and that's not usual for a prosecutor to be involved in a case in which the defense attorney has this feeling of righteousness. Um, that's supposed to be mine. That's supposed <laughs> to be my territory. And so I, I it was upsetting to see him um, so, um, so sure of himself and so sure of the merits of his case. And I could start reading the jurors. I pride myself on being able to kind of um, see what's on the jurors' minds, really almost within 10 seconds of their starting to answer questions. And I didn't like what I was saying. I was seeing a a lot of um, various degrees of hatred for me registering on faces, so I I started getting the feeling that this was not a great case very early on in the trial. But Garino had a Perry Mason moment in mind that he thought was a killer. You know, er every prosecutor wants to um, present the critical evidence in a dramatic way, and I wanted the poster introduced by the mother of the child, who had purchased the album. Mary Sierra to the stand. Let's get Mary Sierra to the stand. And then she would lay the foundation for this poster. I'd ask her if this is, the, this is similar to the poster that she saw on the album that her son had purchased. She would say yes, and then at that point, I would have it marked as an exhibit, and I, not Phil, but I, would then show it to the jury. And it would be the moment that I chose rather than the moment that Phil chose. And instead of that happening, Phil, on his first question, I mean, it was like his first question on out of the box. Um, all of a sudden, Phil is passing this poster out to the jurors and they're looking at it and they're getting used to it and said, "What, you know, this is a, a poster that's ugly and it's offensive, but you're gonna have to decide whether or not it's obscene.
4: The jury survived their peak at Penis Landscape, and then Schneerson played them some Dead Kennedy songs. The band's lyrics, it was soon obvious, were blunt, but surprisingly sophisticated. To the jury and to Garino, who of course had never heard the band until he got to court, the Giger poster now had some context that put it in a very different light. The defense called professors and music critics to the stand, and the trial became an art and history lesson instead of a discourse about protecting the children there's the way you tell the story of your life and if you're lucky your version is the best known if you're not so lucky some opponent defines your legacy for you and if you're really unlucky that opponent is jello biafra
6: all right isn't this painting sick isn't this painting obscene Isn't this painting sick? Don't you think Giger is obsessed with sex with the dead? Isn't this painting sexually explicit? Isn't this sick? Isn't this sick? This is
4: Jello from a spoken word account of the trial on an album called The High Priest of Harmful Matter. He toured with this material. got a lot of attention and press for it. If Garino's mistake was that he didn't really know and understand his enemy, he was up against a foe who was an amazingly close observer of people. And throughout the 44-minute monologue, Jello does a withering impersonation of Guarino, who comes across in great detail
6: as a moralizing bozo. I can't imitate Michael Guarino properly without a pen open and cocked between the index and middle finger,
0: always kind of poking
6: at you right at eye level when he talks to you, kind of like a little claw or something, poking at you with his pen. And here's Jello doing Guarino, talking to the jury.
0: Don't be fooled by the
6: fact that Mr. Jello Biafra appears to be nicely dressed or smiling banana over here. And don't be fooled by the fact that their lawyers appear to be friendlier than I am. (laughs) Finally, he couldn't restrain himself. He had to do it anyway. He whips out the Giger poster and flails it around the courtroom for all to see, thus exposing its contents to at least 15 minors in the courtroom gallery. (laughs)
4: By the time Garina was waving that poster around, just about everything that could go wrong for him had gone wrong. So wrong that even he didn't believe his arguments anymore. Just as bad, the guy who was supposed to be cast as the villain, Jello, was coming across like the reasonable one. Remember, this was big news, a test case in the 80s culture wars. In the international coverage of the trial and in reports in newspapers and on television, it was clear that Biafra wasn't the only one who found the
5: whole thing a little ridiculous. Well, all throughout the trial, um, we were seeing um, various anchors um, kind of smirking at the fact that we were doing this. <laughs> that was unusual. <laughs> that was different. I hadn't experienced that yet. But uh, that was. <laughs> I did start to think that I was on not the wrong side of the case so much, but more generally the wrong side of history. I just felt I was on the wrong side of history. He was right. In the end, the jury deadlocked,
4: with a majority for acquittal. Garino requested a retrial, but the judge would have none of it. Case dismissed. This trial was the start of a pretty radical transformation for Michael Garino. After that case, and a few more like it, the priorities of the DA's office started to bug him. There were all these show trials that added up to nothing and all sorts of crimes, corporate crimes, political conflicts of interest, that were just ignored. He feuded with his boss, James Hahn, then became so exasperated that he tried to throw the guy out of office by running against him for the district attorney's job. He lost that election. Hahn is now the mayor of Los Angeles, by the way. Garino left the city and wound up as the dean of a small law school in Northern California. The whole idea of being a prosecutor and doing anything to take an opponent down didn't appeal to him anymore. He was more interested in cases coming out fairly. And once a prosecutor is more interested in fairness than in winning, he's pretty much not doing his job. So in a sense, this trial kind of snapped you out of it. The substance of it began to matter more.
5: Yeah, I I hate to say yes to that, but that's that's actually a pretty accurate assessment. Um, If I look back, I would say that that was a turning point for me. He was a different guy but nobody knew it. He couldn't escape his most famous
4: case. For one thing, his students remembered.
5: Uh, From time to time, someone would come up to me and say, are you the Mike Garino that prosecuted Jello Biafra? What were you thinking? And um, students were amazed that this person that they thought they knew had been involved in this thing. I think they were kind of hoping I'd say that was a different Michael Garino. And if that wasn't bad enough, his
4: son for reasons we can only guess at, turned into a huge fan of Jello Biafra. And at home, he's forced to listen to Dead Kennedy's music for years. (laughs) The old version of Garino, the one parodied by Jello, has pretty much vanished from the world. Jello has never met the new Garino, and given the hand that Jello had in defining the old one, we decided it was time for an introduction. I hear a ringing. Hello. Jello Biafra is on the line with me. Hello. Hello, Jello. Hi. How are you? Okay. Good. Did you guys ever get a chance to talk?
6: I don't think. I think our only conversation was right after
5: the trial. When you handed me I, the album.
6: Yeah, I, I yeah, held I up the that. insert from a, a, a an extended play recording by a band called Big Black called right. Headache right. that had a pathology <laughs> photo of somebody whose head was split open inside. You know, thinking if you think the Giger painting is a fancy, wait till you see this. Yeah, I thought and that then, was really
5: sweet of you to do. I remember. I, <laughs> I, I think
6: you said, "Don't be a bad winner." which I, I took that very seriously, and I thought you had a point on that. And then the elevator doors closed, and away I went. <laughs> I
4: Years ago, Jello heard that good, Michael regretted I the case, and Jello wasn't angry at him anymore. So out, this became a heart-to-heart conversation it, pretty quickly.
5: And she said, well, I think it was, uh, you, you probably had a little bit, maybe more than a little bit to do with, my changing my mind about what the priorities ought to be at the city attorney 's office, and I remember that you said in some interview, jello that i I seemed so pure, I was trying to look out for I, I thought I was looking out for the youth of america and um, and, and I knew how sar- I knew the exact degree of sarcasm <laughs> 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 then I, I, I think I did a little soul searching after that trial, so it was all for the good really
6: well. Um... You know what I'm getting out of all this today is Mr. Guarino crediting me with being long-term a positive influence on his life, and uh, I never would have guessed that that could have happened. And you know that 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 makes it all the more worthwhile to keep uh, causing trouble the way I do. I mean, it always.
4: After a few happens. minutes, these two were talking like old war buddies. Then they were just talking. And then it was hard to get a word in edgewise. They reminisced about the trial.
6: At the time, you came across, uh, you know, quite uh, zealous. (laughs) Is that a compliment?
4: They cleared up a few nagging questions.
6: Why was it necessary for Detective Carter to lie on the witness stand about a point that didn't really even matter?
4: They talked politics, Al Gore 2000 elections.
6: Yeah, he did win. He
4: did win, yeah. Let me, let, me, uh, let me get us sure. back to, <laughs> to he
6: didn't even, he
2: didn't even
4: These two guys, who were at war for a year and a half, were actually bonding. Politically, they were on the same page,
5: and it was a page where you don't find a lot of Americans these days. And I'm hoping that they'll see the similarities between Bush and, and Mussolini, frankly. Because well, the one who's the most like Mussolini is
6: Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> can,
5: I, can I interrupt here and just say it's
4: it's kind of hard to imagine that you guys ever were adversaries.
5: I have a very – I have a good feeling about Jello. I, I don't think you can fake fondness, I, and I know I can't. If I'm not fond of somebody, people can tell it. Pretty fast. But I, yep. I, but I'm fond of Jello. I think he's. I think he's a good guy.
4: Jello, would you like to share?
5: <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you. I, I, I don't know what else
6: to say on that. I think I said earlier. You know, I forgave Mr. Guarino a long time ago for uh, his his role in the original prosecution. And, um, you know, I've learned over the years that people do change, and uh, sometimes it can be uh, very interesting to get to know people who in earlier times may have uh, tormented you.
4: (laughs) They talked for over an hour. By the end, these two were exchanging phone numbers. They were planning to go to dinner together, along with Garino's son.
5: My son is probably one of your biggest fans how old is he now? He's 22. Wow. Yeah, he's 22 years old and he would play your stuff so loud that half the block could hear it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I did that with the Stooges when I was <laughs> <a year. laughs> Well, he was just he was a huge fan.
4: When you know your enemy and your enemy knows you, It's sometimes hard to stay enemies. And yes, the ill-fated prosecution of Gelo will probably make it into Michael Garino's obituary if it's not actually in the headline. But at this point, Garino can't be bothered to care that much. The people who know him know he's changed. And most important, his adversary knows he's changed. To put this in sheep terms, a lamb can lie down with the lion. The lion has turned himself into a lamb. Or put another way, one that doesn't appear in the Bible, maybe you can un a sheep. It just takes longer for word of that to get around.
0: When he's not here on the radio trying to get predators and prey to sit down together and make nice, David Siegel is a reporter for the Washington Post. 8% Three, 8% of nothing But we end our program today with a story about what it means to know your enemy In a more domestic setting Namely, within a marriage The story is by Edgar Carrot Read for us by Matt Molloy
7: Benny Brokeridge had been waiting for them in the doorway for almost half an hour And when they arrived, he tried to act as if it didn't make him mad It's all her fault The old man sniggered and held out his hand for a firm, no-nonsense shake Don't believe Butchie The peroxide urged him. She looked at least 15 years younger than her man. We got here earlier, except we couldn't find any parking. And Benny Brokerage gave her his foxy smile, like he really gave a damn why she and Butchie were late. He showed them the apartment, which was almost completely furnished, with a high ceiling and a kitchen window that almost gave you a view of the sea. He'd barely gotten through half the usual round when Butchie pulled out his checkbook and said he'd take it. that he was even okay with paying a year's rent up front, except that he wanted a bit off the top, just to feel like he wasn't being taken for a ride. Benny Brokeridge explained that the owner was living abroad, so he wasn't at liberty to lower the price. Butchie insisted it was small change. As far as I'm concerned, he said, you can take it off your commission. What's your cut? Eight, Benny Brokeridge said after a moment's pause, preferring not to risk a lie. So you'll still be left with five, Butchie announced and finished writing out the check. When he saw that the broker wasn't holding out his hand to take it, he added, Look at it this way. The market's in the cellar, and five percent of something's a lot more than eight percent of nothing. Butchie, or Tuvia Minster, which was the name that appeared on the check, said the peroxide would drop by the next morning to pick up an extra key. Benny Brokeridge said no problem, except that it had to be before 11, because he had some appointments after that. The next day, she didn't show. It was 11.20 already, and Benny Brokeridge, who was aching to leave, but didn't really want to stand her up, pulled the check out of the drawer. It had the office phone numbers, but he preferred to avoid another tedious conversation with Butchie and went for the home number instead. It wasn't until she answered that he remembered he didn't even know her name, so he opted for Mrs. Minster. She somehow sounded a little less dumb on the phone, but she still couldn't remember who he was or that they'd made an appointment for that morning. Penny Brokerage kept his cool and reminded her slowly, the way you do when you're talking to a child, how he had met with her and her husband the day before, and how they'd signed for the apartment. There was no response at the other end, and when she finally asked him to describe what she looked like, he realized he'd really blown it. "'The truth is,' he crooned, "'that I must have the wrong number. "'What did you say your husband's name is?' "'That's it, then. I was looking for and Dahlia. Those 411 people messed me up again. I'm really sorry. Goodbye. And he slammed the receiver down before she had a chance to answer. The peroxide arrived at the office fifteen minutes later eyes at half mass and a face that hadn't been washed yet. I'm sorry, she yawned. It took me a half an hour to find a cab. The following morning, when he arrived at the office, there was a woman waiting outside on the sidewalk. She looked about 40, and something about the way she was dressed, about her fragrance, was so not from around here that when he spoke, he instinctively went for his most genteel pronunciation. Turned out she was looking for a two- or three-room place. She'd prefer to buy, but she didn't rule out a rental as long as it was available right away. Benny Brokerage said he did happen to have a few nice apartments for sale and that because the market was in a slump they would be reasonably priced, too. He asked her how she'd found him and she said she'd looked in the yellow pages. Are you Benny? she asked. He said no, that there hadn't been a Benny for ages. I kept the name in order not to lose the goodwill. I'm Michael, he smiled. The truth is, When I'm on the job, even I forget sometimes. I'm Leah, the woman smiled back. Leah Minster. We spoke on the phone yesterday. This is a little uncomfortable, Leah Minster said all of a sudden, out of nowhere. The first apartment had been too dark, and they were walking through the second one. Benny brokerage tried to play dumb, and started talking about how simple it would be to renovate and stuff like that, as if she'd been referring to the apartment. "'After you phoned me,' Liam Minster ignored his reply, "'I tried to talk it over with him. At first he lied, but then he got tired of it and confessed. "'That's what the apartment is for. I'm leaving him.' Benny Brokerage continued showing her around. Thinking to himself that it was none of his business, that there was no reason for him to get uptight. Is she young? Leah Minster persisted, and he nodded and said, She's not nearly as pretty as you. I hate having to say a thing like this about a client, but he's an idiot. The third apartment had better light and when he showed her the view of the park from the bedroom window, he felt her moving closer. Not touching him exactly, but close enough. And even though she liked the apartment, she wanted him to show her another one. In the car, she kept asking him all sorts of questions about the peroxide, and Benny Brokridge tried to put her down but stayed kind of vague at the same time. He didn't really feel comfortable with it. But he went on, because he saw it was making her happy. Whenever they stopped talking, there was a kind of tension, especially at the stoplights. And somehow he couldn't think of anything to say, the way he usually could, a little story that would take their minds off of being stuck. All he could do was stare at the traffic light and wait for it to change. At one of the intersections, even when the light changed... The car in front of them, a Mercedes, didn't move. Benny Brokeridge slammed the horn twice and cursed the driver through the window. And when the guy in the Mercedes didn't seem to give a damn, he stormed out of the car. Turned out there was nobody to pick a fight with, though, because the driver, who seemed at first to be dozing, didn't wake up, even when Benny Brokeridge nudged him. Then the ambulance crew arrived and said it was a stroke. They searched the driver's pockets in the car, but they couldn't find any ID. And Benny Brokeridge felt kinda rotten for cursing the guy without a name. And he was sorry for the mean things he'd said about the peroxide, too. Even though that really had nothing to do with it. (music) Leah Minster sat beside him in the car, looking pale. He drove her back to the office and made them both some coffee. The truth is that I didn't tell him anything, she said, and took a sip of the instant. I was lying, actually, just so you'd tell me about her. I'm sorry, but I just had to find out. Benny Brokeridge smiled and told himself and her that there was no harm done, really. That all they'd done was see a couple of apartments and some poor guy who dropped dead She finished her coffee, said sorry again, and left. And Michael, who still had a few sips to go, looked around his office, a two-by-three cubicle with a window overlooking the main drag. Suddenly the place seemed so small and transparent, like the ant colony he got for his bar mitzvah a million years ago. And all the goodwill he'd boasted about so solemnly just two hours earlier also sounded like crap. Lately, it had begun bothering him that people called him Benny. Matt Malloy, reading a short
0: story by Edgar Carrot, which will be published here next year in a collection called The Nimrod Flipout from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Edgar Carrot is also the author of the book The Bus Driver Who Thought That He Was God. Our program is produced today by Jane Feltus and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Wendy Dor, Sarah Koenig, and Lisa Pollock. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Kevin Clark. Special thanks today to Owen Smith, Andy David, Rachel Haverlock, Dave Auburn, and Nancy Updike. Stephen Debner's book, where we first learned about Stetson Kennedy and Superman, is called Freakonomics. It comes out in June. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our shows for absolutely free you know you can download audio of our program at audible.com slash This American Life. They are public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life comes from Volkswagen of America and the Phaeton. With four-motion all-wheel drive, an adjustable air suspension, and 335-horsepower V8 engine, all standard. It's everything Volkswagen knows how to do, done all at once. Learn more about the Phaeton at vw.com. And by Disney, presenting a Pixar film, The Incredibles, featuring the voice of our own contributing editor, Sarah Val, as Violet. The creators of Finding Nemo show you a side of superheroes you've never seen before. Now on DVD, reviews and rating information at TheIncredibles.com. WBEZ management oversight for our program by Tori Malatia, who has a message today for everyone. What this country needs is a good kluxin. Amara am Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life.